Our first word this evening comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning at verse 32. Two other men who were criminals were led away with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They cast lots to divide his garments among them. Had we been in Jesus' situation, we probably would have found the strength to utter some memorable last words. Words of power, words that would have blistered the ears of anyone who heard what we had to say. The one thing we very likely would not have said was a word of forgiveness. Forgiveness, it doesn't come easily to us. And when the other person is not deserving of this forgiveness, well, it is usually likely to never come at all. Our combination of anger and the twisted notion that forgiveness must first be earned usually results in us being icy towards that person or saying some choice words in the heat of the moment. And yet, what is it that Jesus says? His first thing that he says from the cross to those who put him on that cross? A word of forgiveness. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus when he says they do not know what they are doing. The Jewish leaders understood full well that they condemned an innocent man to death and trampled on the very notion of justice. The Roman soldiers, even if they didn't know Jesus' backstory, they knew enough that a person should not be crucified for merely claiming to be a king. While it's true that neither party knew that they were putting the Son of God himself to death on that cross, they knew enough to understand that what they were doing was wrong. And so Jesus speaks this word of forgiveness. A word of forgiveness that does not leave them in the clear. After all, ignorance of the law does not excuse you from the law. As any one of us can attest after being pulled over for breaking an unknown traffic law that we didn't know about. If you do something wrong, you need to pay the price. That's why Jesus' word of forgiveness actually charges them with guilt, which is why they needed forgiveness. And so Jesus spoke to his Father in heaven asking his father to forgive them. That is, to now bring down the justice on them immediately that they deserved, but instead to give them time to come to recognition of their sin and by the work of the Holy Spirit to come to faith. And perhaps Jesus' prayer for forgiveness was granted for these very men. When later on Pentecost, how we see uh, 3,000 Jewish people who realized what they had done. As the book of Acts tells us how they were cut to the heart when they recognized that they had put the Son of God himself to death on that cross. And as they asked Peter what they should do, he replied to them and said to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And so 3,000 that day did, and they received that forgiveness that Jesus had prayed for. Now, does Jesus' forgiveness apply even to us who know full well what we are doing when we sin against our Lord? Of 
course it does. Even though we were born in sin, God did not bring down on us the justice that we immediately deserved right then and there. Instead, he has been patient, giving us time to withhold that forgiveness. But even more than that, he has given us faith in Jesus so that we may have the forgiveness that he prayed for on that cross, forgiveness that takes our sins away because of what he would do for us on Good Friday. Amen. Our second word comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning at verse 35. The people stood watching. The rulers were ridiculing him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also made fun of him. Coming up to him, they offered him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription written above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging there was blaspheming him, saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you were under the same condemnation, we are punished justly. For we are, reserving, we are receiving what we deserve for what we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Amen, I tell you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Had I been Jesus... I would have tried to conserve as much energy as possible while hanging on that cross. And yet in the second word that he speaks from the cross, he goes at some length in reply to the criminal. Now granted, it's only 12 words in English, but he could have gotten by with just a simple okay to the criminal. Why did he speak at such length to this fellow crucified man? It's because Jesus wanted this word from the cross to be a word of promise. This was no casual throwaway promise like, yeah, sure, or the kind of promise you may say when we'll see how things turn out, we'll play it by ear. Now that may, promise may work when the kids ask if tonight is the night when you get to go to EG's and receive their flavor of the month. In some situations, that idea of a hopeful uncertainty, it may suffice but not for this situation. In many ways, the criminal's request of Jesus is the same thing that we request. We want to know, we, we need to know if there, what will happen to us. We want to know for certain what will happen if indeed our Lord will remember us when he comes into his kingdom, if he will remember us at our last hour as he did with this criminal. And so we listen to what Jesus says in this second word from the cross. Jesus begins by saying, Amen, I tell you. Have no doubt this is a word of promise from the one whose promises are always trustworthy. He goes on to say, Today, not eventually or someday we'll see what happens, but today, meaning right now, again, another word of promise. And then Jesus goes on to say, you. 
this criminal wanted to know what would happen to him. Someone who was receiving the death that his evil deeds certainly deserved. He wanted the assurance that there would be room and welcome even for a sinner such as himself. And isn't that the same thing that you and I wonder too? You know the depths of your sinfulness and what you deserve because of it. You want the assurance if indeed there, there will be room in heaven for a sinner such as yourself. And indeed there is. Because this promise was spoken to you. Jesus closed out this word of promise by saying, we'll be with me in paradise. Not maybe or perhaps will be, but, but will be. And it's the with me that certainly comforts us. Because isn't that the best thing about being in the paradise of heaven? That we get to be with our Savior Jesus for time everlasting and indeed, that will be the case when we finally go to be with him in his abiding presence once and forever. It's in this word of promise that Jesus gives to us what we want to know. That he will certainly remember us. And that when we pass away, we will immediately be with him in heaven. The paradise that it certainly is. Amen. Our third word comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning at verse 25. Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene were standing near the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time, this disciple took her into his home. That was the number one thing on Jesus' mind at this time. Granted, Jesus was always good about serving his neighbor, but given everything that was happening at the cross and how he was about to receive the full weight of sins hit him like a runaway freight train, this is what he takes time to talk about on that cross to make sure that his mother would be taken care of after he would no longer be in this world? Apparently so. And so he gathered what strength he had, and he spoke this word of love for his mother. Now, we can try to make it comprehensible by saying that family matters all the time, and especially mothers, and indeed that's true. But as we make that argument, don't we write in that same breath just incriminate ourselves? What words have we used in speaking to our mothers? Have they been words of love? To the ones who are very likely the one responsible for who we are today? Or have they perhaps been words of a different kind? Words of an opposite kind? Words of dismissiveness or anger? Words of rebellion or disrespect. And very likely we have spoken these words in far less trying circumstances than what Jesus had on that cross. Words that we can't even come up with an excuse for to explain why we use such loveless words. And yet Jesus speaks this word of love. And in so doing, we see him 
honoring his mother, keeping that fourth commandment given in God's Ten Commandments, showing us that as our substitute, he keeps the law perfectly in our place so that his perfection can be credited to our account. But it's also in this word of love we see something else. Jesus' overriding love for all his family, including you and me. We may think that Mary was inclined to receive this love and concern from Jesus simply because she was his mother. But listen to how it is that Jesus described who his family is. Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? He reached out his hand, hand towards his disciples and said, See, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. When Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father, you may think that excludes you. But remember what his will is. The will of the Father is that we believe in his Son to be our Savior. And because we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have that faith And we can certainly be included among those that Paul had in mind in Galatians chapter 3, that in fact, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That is, we are in the family of God with our Savior's love overriding all things for us. You see, it was in our first word of the cross, that word of forgiveness. We learned how our souls are covered because our sins have been taken away completely. But it's in this word of love that we see how our entire selves are covered by the love of Christ, the love he has for each and every one in his family. Amen. Our fourth word comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning at verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. About the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The title for this fourth word is a word of anguish. But even that title, especially the word anguish, doesn't do justice to what Jesus suffered on that cross. It is woefully inadequate. You see, the unspoken answer to Jesus' question about why the Father had forsaken him, abandoned him, is this. Because God was punishing his son. Not just for your sins, which would be a staggering large amount enough on its own, but for the sins of every person, of every time, from every place. And it is that unspoken answer which tells us what Jesus was going through. But it doesn't provide the word that best describes the deep turmoil that Jesus suffered on that cross. What word could do it justice? To describe the just and holy wrath that he was suffering for the sins of every single person in the world. We use the word anguish in only the most extreme circumstances to describe the worst of the worst of whatever it may be. Now, I don't mean to dismiss the deepest anguish that you have felt, but it somehow seems wrong to use something that applies to us and say that it's also the same 
for Jesus. After all, take the, the deepest emotional sorrow that you have gone through. Multiply it by the most excruciating pain that you have felt. Take that result and then just throw it away. Because not even that can do justice to what Jesus endured on that cross, abandoned by his own Father in heaven. So what word can we use to describe the living hell that he endured for us? While the word anguish doesn't quite come up to it, it's the closest that we can use. And so we use it, but with the full knowledge of what all Jesus endured on that cross for you and for me. And then we stand mutely in reverent awe and wonder at the love that drove Jesus to go to the cross to suffer hell itself so that you and I may never have to experience this indescribable anguish. Amen. Our fifth word comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. After this, knowing that everything had now been finished, and to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they put a sponge soaked in sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Why is it that Jesus spoke this word from the cross? If we accept the premise that the most obvious answer is the correct one, it would seem to be because he was thirsty. And indeed he was. A raging thirst was one of the side effects from being crucified. And it does as well to take a moment to ponder upon that truth. Because even though Jesus said a different set of last words, far different than what you or I probably would say, the pain that he felt was very much real pain. What was going there on Calvary was not a charade or Jesus pretending to be something that he wasn't. No, these were actual nails driven through actual nerves and tendons, bringing along actual pain. And this was real thirst. This all goes to remind us that there was a real payment for sins given that day on Calvary. And that our sins have really been paid for. But getting back to Jesus' thirst, was it because of his desire to quench it that he spoke this word? Not so much. Rather, we're told in these verses why he said it, that it was to fulfill the scripture. The same Savior who came to fulfill every one of God's commands also came to fulfill every prophecy written about him. How he prophesied about himself in Psalm 22, my strength is dried up like broken pottery and my tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. And then in Psalm 69, he said, they put bitter poison in my food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Given all that Jesus had been through up to this point, none of us would probably blame him if he would have left this little bit of prophecy to the side. But that's never been Jesus' way. He never took a vacation from being your savior or <clears throat> a coffee break from being your substitute. He left nothing undone. 
to show to us that there is nothing that we need to do or to finish off in order to be saved. Because even in the most minutest of details, Jesus has fulfilled it all. Amen. Our sixth word comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Finished. That's something that for us is quite hard to actually imagine to have happen, to have actually have something finished. I suppose that little things can get finished, like doing your taxes or reading a book, but doing the laundry, cleaning the house, grocery shopping, car and home maintenance, those things are never finished. They always need more work on them or something to be redone after not too long. And who of us here would say that we are finished in our relationships with our loved ones? Well, there may be nothing that needs to get fixed. There's always something that we can do to make it better than what it was before. In many ways, people can view their relationship with God in the same way as something that is unfinished, something that is always under construction. People who think this often talk about what they need to do to get right with God or to remain on his good side. And while this may sound very humble, it's instead very mistaken because they ignore what it is that Jesus meant when he said it is finished with his word of completion. What did Jesus mean when it came to the sacrifice for sins? As the writer to Hebrews tells us, Christ was offered only once to take away the sins of many. This priest offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. It was finished. What did Jesus mean when it came to the condemnation of God's law? As the Apostle Paul says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was handed over to death because of our trespasses. It was finished. What did Jesus mean about us needing to perfectly keep God's commands? As Hebrew again tells us, By one sacrifice, Jesus made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. Again, it was finished. The sixth word of the cross that Jesus spoke was quite literally one word. In the original Greek, the phrase, it is finished, is the sole word to telestai. The word that a shopkeeper would write on a bill when it had been paid in full. In the same way, our bill of sins has been paid in full by Jesus. And so Jesus gathered what remaining strength he had, and he said the sixth word of the cross, not so that his Father in heaven could hear it. After all, he already knew that it was finished. But for those who are tormented by their sins, for you and for me, So that when the devil comes in our deathbed and holds before us that Ten Commandments that fill us with despair, we can say to him, it is finished. It is finished. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, has purified me from every sin. And we will indeed hear this word again. 
when our Savior comes back to judge the living and the dead on the last day, he will take our bill of sins and stamp it paid in full and say the glorious words, it is finished. Amen. Our seventh word comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun was darkened. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. We have come to the final word that Jesus spoke from the cross. And if you were to do an internet search for famous last words, you'll come across any number of them. Many of them are words of wit that are probably meant to communicate that this person who spoke them remained confident even in the face of death. I suppose that they're meant to show, even subconsciously, that death is not something that should intimidate us. Rather, death is just the setup to the punchline that we get to say before we pass away. But death is not that. The reality is that death is the punchline that is the strongest of all because the knockout punch that it delivers leaves complete silence in its wake. As we hear Jesus' last word, we may be expecting him to say something of defeat or of despair. But instead, this is what Jesus says. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are not words of defeat, despair, or death. They are, in fact, confident words of life and of victory. As Jesus assured to the thief on the cross that it would be today that he would be in the paradise of heaven, so Jesus expected the same. Yes, his body would be laid in the grave that same afternoon, but his soul would be immediately received by his Father in heaven. And three days later, as soul would be reunited with his body, a perfect, glorified body. It's in this last word from the cross we hear Jesus address God as his Father once again. He knew that he had kept everything that the Father had asked of him and remained blameless to the very end. And so he confidently and peacefully placed his hands, placed his life into the hands of his Father. When it comes to our last day, we too can echo the same confidence of Jesus. As we say in Luther's evening prayer, into your hands I commit my body and soul and all things. Even in death, we are confident because of what the Lord has promised us. That our souls would not be judged for everlasting suffering by an angry judge, but rather we can look forward to being received in the very hands of our loving Father, blameless to the very end because of Jesus, his Son. And so in our last hour, we, we too can confidently and peacefully entrust our life into God's own hands, knowing that our sins have been paid for and completely removed. And why is this the case? All because of one reason. 
because of what Jesus did for you and for me on this Good Friday. Amen.